Welcome to Digging In, Missouri Farm Bureau's podcast. I'm your special guest host, Garrett Hawkins, and service president of the organization. Thrilled uh, to be topping up, talking about a hot topic that we have been writing about, but it's also great to to involve key experts uh, in the conversation of, of climate. And so today I'm joined by uh, agricultural economist Ray Massey uh, with the University of Missouri. So welcome, Ray, to Digging In. Well, thank you, Garrett. It's fun to be here. So for our listeners' listening pleasure, give us a little <laughs> bit about your background uh, in terms of some of the work that you've done during your years of service. Okay. Well, I tended my 30-second spiel is I look at the interface between production agriculture and the environment. So I'll look at decisions farmers are having to make because of the environment, uh, so weather, extreme weather events and things of that nature. And I'll also look at things that the EPA, Missouri Department of Natural Resources, uh, regulations that they may be proposing and how that might affect farmers. And so I'm looking at both sides of that. Uh, I've frequently had uh, projects that have been well received on using weather to make decisions. Um, And so that's kind of where I'm at for the most part. Which is exactly why you're sitting across from me today as we talk about a really hot topic that is under discussion in D.C., but has an effect on all farmers and ranchers and really all Americans, right? So the whole notion of of climate change, which isn't a new topic. I think back to my early days at Farm Bureau, and then the term was global warming, right? Right. And then then it started shifting to to climate change. And 10, 12 years ago, we talked a lot about mandatory cap and trade. And and now the conversation has really shifted to where now it's an all of government approach. And there's a lot going on. But but today, especially with your background, I'd really like to, to dig into the impact of agriculture or supposed impact of agriculture on this issue and try and give context to our our listeners. Because to be frank, it seems like we get a lot of fingers pointed at us quite often. I mean, take your pick of issues, but especially on (laughs) on this one. So uh, I'm glad you're here today to help me understand, you know, are we the problem? We believe, and the data shows that that we're not. But I, I want to hear from you. So, so can you at least start us from the big picture, Ray? What what is what is the issue? Okay, from the big picture, agriculture does emit about nine to ten percent of all greenhouse gases that are emitted in the United States every year. So, from a climate scientist perspective, we have an opportunity to reduce the situation is over the last 30 years we have not reduced the total number of greenhouse gases emitted by agriculture but our productivity has gone up so much that the greenhouse gases per bushel of corn per pound of beef uh, have been reduced significantly so it's a kind of a question of do we really want to feed the world and if we want to feed the world we'll want to do that using U.S. agricultural methods, because if you read the U.S. EPA reports on climate or greenhouse gas emissions and compare that to the United Nations reports on greenhouse gas emissions, we have a very favorable situation. The yield or the the greenhouse gases per unit of production are going down in the United States. They are not going down in most of the rest of the world. Uh, so, 
we feed the world not only efficiently and cheaply, but we do it with less greenhouse gas emissions. Okay, so let's, when we talk about greenhouse gas emissions, break that down for me. What, what are we talking about? Okay, most people think of carbon dioxide. The United States agriculture emits very, very little carbon dioxide. What we emit is nitrous oxide, and that is almost all due to our carbon or our fertilization. So whenever we put down nitrogen fertilizer, there will be a little bit of nitrous oxide that escapes into the environment. Uh, so that's about half of our emissions. The other half of our emissions would be methane, and that would be related to livestock production. Ruminants belch, uh, that's a methane activity, and manure that is kept in a liquid environment converts into methane. And so half is methane, half is nitrous oxide, just real on rough numbers. Um, and so the opportunity to capture methane from manure is actually pretty good, and it's allowed in California where they have a mandatory carbon market. Uh, but the opportunity to capture nitrous oxide is a little bit more challenging uh, since we do fertilize with, with nitrogen fertilizers. It's not impossible. We're actually getting better at it. So when farmers follow the four R's, the right time, place, product, uh, and I just forgot the th fourth R, but that's me. <laughs> um, when they follow the four R's, they are actually producing more product per unit of greenhouse gas emissions than if they have done what they have done 30 years ago. So we're, we're improving, but that's going to be a little bit more challenging. The other thing that I think is critical is that we understand land use and land use change, which a lot of people speak about. Uh, in the United States, we have had, from land use and land use change, more carbon sequestered then released. So you'd have a release from uh, cutting down a forest. And that's where most people think about. We're cutting down forest in Brazil. That's a land use and land use change. In Missouri, or really in the United States, we're actually growing more forest because we can produce more per acre of land for, of corn and soybeans. And we're also, because of the technologies that we're doing, such as no-till, we're sequestering more carbon in the soil than we did 30 years ago. So the soil organic matter is kind of came, came down, down, down uh, as we were breaking up the, the sod in the United States, but it has turned around and it's going up, which means we are, through our land use, actually sequestering more carbon than we have in the past. Okay, you've given me a lot to unpack. <laughs> Too much. I, <laughs> no. I probably should have talked for 30 seconds. <laughs> no, but, no, but this is great because we're starting to flip the pages here of the storybook, the story that we need to tell in agriculture. So, so, so Ray, let's think about Missouri. And, and something that I've been uh, – that I talk a lot about is the fact that, that Missourians have actually for several decades now invested our own dollars, right, to, to do both – enhancement to state parks as well as soil and water conservation through our, right. through our state cost share program. So it's just these programs have never been framed in the way of being, being climate smart, but yet there are practices that have been put on the ground for decades that do make a difference, right? They do. And you're right. They've been uh, used for decades. 
We normally have thought of them for water quality, uh, or at least many of them, but they also are enhancing air quality as far as greenhouse gases released. And so we have been making progress for decades. So, so if we let's just focus a little bit on row crop agriculture. Obviously, you've touched on no-till. Both of us clearly know that uh, every year can be a little different on the farm, and mm. ultimately, weather can dictate some <laughs> of the decisions that are made. You know, at uh, as you're going into to planting season. But talk to me about some of the some of the things that should be on farmers' minds. Have been we've seen greater adoption of new technologies. What are we seeing that's helping drive continued improvement? Um, we are, you mean, such as the no-till? Uh, well, and not just no-till, but, you you know, obviously you're getting at variable rate fertilizer applications oh. mm -hmm. to to GPS technology. Right. So, so what are we seeing in, that's helping contribute? Well, Almost anything that you would say is causing us to become more efficient, meaning we're increasing our yield without increasing our inputs necessary for that yield, is good for the, the bottom line of the farmer, but also good for the environment. So as we are using precision agriculture, for example, and putting inputs where they need to be, we are saving uh, soil, we're saving resources. We are reducing greenhouse gas emissions. We're uh, sequestering carbon, putting it into the soil. So historically, we've said, hey, we need to get the erosion rate down uh, to 1T. Well, when we get the erosion rate down, we actually are sequestering carbon, not just getting the erosion rate down. Uh, when we use less fertilizer, to get the same pound or bushel of corn, we are reducing greenhouse gases. All of those things that are we would say are efficient and that farmers want to pursue are good for the environment. Hmm. We just haven't told the story in that way, but there seems like there's a tremendous opportunity. There's an opportunity, and there's also a challenge. So, you know, a lot, uh, a lot of farmers have moved to no-till. A lot of farmers have not moved to no-till. Uh, and part of the question is, why haven't they moved to no-till? And they would say, well, it does not fit my soils. It does not fit the, uh, the cost-benefit ratio that they would calculate. And so at that point, we say, all right, is there a way to incentivize them to move in that direction? Uh, but almost any time you put an incentive in, it may limit your other activities, your other options. For example, you... You want to uh, enter into a carbon market contract, and they say, do it no-till. And then all of a sudden, you have a very wet fall, <laughs> and to harvest your corn Bingo. or your soybeans, you've got compaction. And the, what's the best way to get rid of compaction is to go out there and fluff up the soil a little bit, um, which is not no-till. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so there's, there's challenges. But for the most part, we are moving in the direction where we are taking care of the resources. I mean, you hit the nail on the head that on the you're exactly right. No two years are exactly alike. And ultimately, we have to adjust and make decisions on the ground, right, to be able to produce that next crop. And, and, and sometimes no-till won't work for, for a year because of 
just the issue that you described. Right. So really what I would say is important is that farmers be given the freedom to make the decisions that are best for their environment. Uh, So there are challenges with giving farmers the freedom to do that, but most of the time the farmer is going to want to preserve their soil. That's their biggest asset. And so to the degree that they can preserve that soil asset, they are going to reduce carbon sequestration or increase carbon sequestration, reduce carbon emissions. Um, There will be a year or two that it just doesn't work. But if we mandated a particular type of production, there would be several years in which it just doesn't work. Uh, And so we need to have that balance of uh, doing what's best when it's at, at the time that it's best and at the location that it's best. I mean, we've always advocated for keeping tools in the toolbox and continuing to add tools so that farmers have and can make the decisions that they need to on the ground, maintaining that flexibility. And that's what I'm hearing from you. That's right. Yes. I, uh, I, I like to say that if we give them tools, teach them how to use it, and then let them make the decision, they'll make the decision that is in line with what they really want done, which most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, will have a social benefit. Uh, You know, uh, Adam Smith gets a a hard knocks because he was saying, hey, let's have a a competition, free market. Uh, But if you ever read his book, he said, a free market exists when I am meeting the needs of my customers. And so when a free market doesn't exist when I am doing what I want, it exists when I'm meeting the needs of my customers. And I th- every farmer has to meet the need of their mm-hmm. customers. And so uh, it will benefit society if we continue to look for ways to improve and teach those ways and let them make those decisions. So I, I want to talk a little before we transition to livestock, let's talk a little bit about cover crops. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there continues to be a lot of excitement. Um, Cost share assistance has been critical in terms of making it more affordable. What are you What are you hearing on the ground from from farmers? Uh, you know, I I hear two things. First off, I work with the cover crop folks at the University of Missouri, and they're all enthusiastic about it. <laughs> uh, and I go out and I talk with farmers that have done it, and they tend to be enthusiastic about it. Uh, but I've also met farmers that have said, you know. Uh, I just have not been able to get it to work, whether it's I harvested late, I couldn't get the plant in there, I couldn't get it to germinate, or I couldn't get it to terminate it in the fall. So the the thing that I think I'm hearing is growing cover crops is not something you just do uh, willy-nilly. It is almost requires almost as much attention as growing the commercial crop of corn and soybeans and wheat uh, because it it's tough it has good results but it's tough it is so for instance we worked with another young farmer uh let's see two years ago uh where we he wanted to cover crop in to to make sure and keep the soil in place i wanted access to maybe some additional grazing so so prior to the corn coming off the field we flew on the seed mix Mm -hmm. um with a little bit of fertilizer so that we could see um we certainly got a stand that met uh, NRCS standards, but it wasn't the stand that I wanted from a 
grazing standpoint. I did right. not get it and maybe had just a couple of weeks ultimately that I was really able to get off of it. So it was a disappointment. We're going to try something different this year in terms of how we do it. But your point's a good one that, again, goes back to no two years or maybe quite the same, and mm-hmm. depending on when you get that crop out and, and et cetera, or the weather at the time. So it does have its challenges. It has its challenges. And you mentioned that there's some subsidies, some cost share from NRCS or the Department of Conservation and things of that nature. Um, those are very good at getting people to experiment. Yes. And so NRCS, I think their contract limit is three years in which they allow you to They'll cost share with you for three years. And I would say, please take advantage of the opportunity to experiment. Say, how am I doing it year one? Year two, you may do something different. And find out if you find a way that works for you, uh, recognizing no two years are the same, and uh, it's going to be a challenge. Yeah, so that, that that's helpful. I appreciate that perspective and those tips. So as we think about animal agriculture... What do you think are some of the biggest opportunities to continue to make gains? I mean, you said it well in terms of just the efficiencies of where we're at today in terms of ultimate meat production, but where do you see it going? So maybe the story that some people need to present is our efficiency. So again, going back to the UN data versus the United States data, everybody talks about a report that was called Livestock's Log Shadow, in which... Agriculture, not agriculture, but meat production was responsible for like 18% of all greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, when you looked at that, it, and in that report itself stated that the real bad players were in the very poor countries that had very poor rations, and therefore they did not have good feed uh, feed to gain efficiency, or they just didn't even have in good enteric fermentation in their ruminant animals. When you looked at it from the developed countries, such as the United States, it wasn't near that bad. And so that that efficiency is a critical thing, and it was admitted in the UN report called Livestock's Long Shadow, but it was not talked about at all in the news. And so hmm. we need to present what is happening in the United States versus the, the rest of the world. Uh, and by the rest of the world. There are some other countries that are just as good as we are, uh, but there are some countries that are just very, very bad at raising meat. Uh, but within the United States, apart, apparent, uh, apart from getting efficiency, the biggest opportunity is probably going to be manure management. And that's where you cover your lagoons or your pits, capture that methane, and this may be a little bit too much science for you, but methane <laughs> captures about 25 times more heat than carbon dioxide. So if you can capture that methane and do nothing but burn it off, you've reduced it from 25 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent to one ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. Now, nobody's really uh, advocating just burning it off. You could, but you can generate electricity with it, and right now, the excitement is putting in into refined natural gas or renewable natural gas hmm. uh, and putting it into vehicles, which get RINs because it's a type of uh, alternative fuel. And so you, you have double benefits. You're getting renewable natural gas uh, payments, and you're also getting uh, 
carbon credits for it that you can sell. Okay. So I'm going to ask you a question um, that I have been asked, and and I try not to get frustrated as a cattleman myself, but mm-hmm. I've been asked before about, well, does it bother you that people talk about your cow's flatulence, right? <laughs> yeah, like except another word was used. And, and what frustrates me, and, and maybe you can help me and my fellow cattlemen or livestock producers try to better explain this, that my frustration is is that – they're singling out one aspect uh, of my operation, but not looking at the big picture. Like we're trying to make sure that we're not overgrazing, that we've got great stands of forage, that we've got a healthy stand of trees. So how how can we do a better job of trying to paint the whole picture as to what's happening on our farms and and not just focusing on gas from cows? Does that make sense? It, it does make sense, and I'm probably not going to give you a good answer. People have lined up on different sides of the argument and aren't all that persuaded by facts. Oh, well, <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm shocked. <laughs> so, but there are fun ways to, to get at it. So I'm going to go from beef to dairy. Okay. So people will say, hey, you know how much uh, carbon is emitted when you drink a, a, a cup of milk? And I go, no, I don't. But do you know how much carbon's emitted when you drink a cup of coffee? And they go, no. And they're, they've got their Starbucks in their hand while they're talking to you about how bad agriculture is. And it actually is the same amount. So a cup of coffee has just as much greenhouse gas emissions as a cup of milk. They're all too eager to say, we should drink less milk. But I don't know of anybody that's saying, let's close down the Starbucks. <laughs> and so you have fun opportunities like okay. that. Okay. But, you know, I would like to say, yeah, feed them the facts, but it's really help them understand it in some term that, they're, that they can associate with. Okay. Uh, well, I, I appreciate that. So, I mean, that, that's one that, I mean, it truly, like, I feel like our farms are, are living every day, right? I mean, there are things that are happening and it, it and I'm sure I'm not the only one that gets frustrated when only one aspect is singled out, and yet we're not given the chance to paint the whole, the whole, the picture. whole picture. Right. Yes. And, and I agree with you. We we aren't always given the chance to paint the whole picture, and so to the degree that we can focus on what's called yield scale emissions, meaning the emissions of greenhouse gases per pound of beef per gallon of milk per bushel of corn, uh, we have reduced that tremendously over the last 30 years. We've also increased the amount of beef and corn that we're producing, and therefore we have not reduced the amount of greenhouse gases emitted into the environment. But we're feeding more people in the world. So you have a choice. Do we feed people let them, or let them starve? Uh, and American farmers, for the most part, demonstrate their compassion by feeding the world. All right. I think you've done a really good job uh, of helping me, even helping us further expand on answering the question of, are we the problem? Because because you've even shed light and helped explain things that, that I hadn't really thought about. The Starbucks analogy is a great, is a great example. It's just 
you know, as farmers, we tend to go about our, our work, right? I mean, we the list is long every day when we get up, and the law, list never seems to, to go away when we go to bed <laughs> at night either and think about what's yet to come for the week. And so we don't often tout and talk about just the progress that we've made. And I continue to think about, you know, Missourians stepping up and, and the soil and water program that we have here in Missouri and the gains that we've made in conservation. And it's just never been touted in a way that, yes, we help reduce soil erosion. Yes, we help improve water quality, but yes, we're also providing these other, other benefits. We provide a suite of environmental benefits every day. And, you know, the fun thing about that for me is we are beginning to talk about developing markets not for a single benefit, but for multiple benefits. So, you know, we have normally said, hey, we, the USDA has said, we will uh, help you with this program. We'll do a cost share with this activity because it helps water quality. Now they're saying, well, it helps water quality and it helps reduce greenhouse gas emissions and it helps... Uh, habitat for for wildlife and things of that nature and so we're we, just as corn seed has stacked traits we're beginning to recognize that the benefits of agriculture are stacking <laughs> and so to the degree that we can earn those stacked credits that will help farmers to to recognize the opportunities well i think you've really teed up for the next uh podcast at some point as we talk about these potential types of, of opportunities for, for farmers and ranchers. But, you know, I think in summary, uh, as we continue to embark on this discussion and pull back the layers, it's yet another reminder to, to those of us that work in agriculture that we don't have to, to um, accept the finger pointing, right? No, we we have a great story to tell, and, and through this opportunity and others, we need to do it. And so hopefully, uh, I think you've given a lot of great information today, Ray, for okay. our listeners, um, that hopefully, if you're whether you're listening in the tractor or the soon combine, if you're starting to harvest, uh, hopefully this is food for thought as you work to tell your own stories. So any closing thoughts, Ray? Again, I would just say that there is a different perspective between the environmental, what they're looking at, and what people that are trying to accomplish uh, food for the world are looking at. Uh, they're looking at total emissions. Farmers tend to look at yield-scaled emissions or emissions per unit. Uh, both are important, but we can address both. Well, clearly, uh, we are not <laughs> the problem that some would no. say, but in fact, we are a provider of solutions, and we're doing so every day just by the nature of what we do that's correct thank you thank you for your time thanks for joining us thanks for the work that you're continuing to do to help those of us uh, in missouri get better well thank you for inviting me here to talk 